Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. got Vikram here from Quantlayer. Thanks for listening to our 33rd podcast. So on this episode, we speak about the problem around connecting smart contracts to real world data, how Oracle solved that problem and the gives and takes around Oracles. We walk through some example Oracles and gold pricing data and prediction markets. We finally wrap up with an interview with Jeff Rosen and Doug Von Cohorn, who are the founders at Rhombus, where we discuss their approach and solution to the Oracle problem. Enjoy. Hey everyone, you've got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking, also joined by Faison, known as the Wizard. What's going on, Faison? Not much. So we're back in town from our trip to ETH Denver. Uh, thanks for the ETH Denver team for the invite. We got to be, meet a bunch of interesting teams at the event, get a sense of things, especially where, where things are going in the Ethereum developer ecosystem side. Faison, what were your thoughts around the event? Yeah, I thought it was a great event. There was a lot of teams there, both for the hackathon itself, but also uh, like teams that were there at booths uh, showing off like the projects that they're working on or like the companies they've launched. And, you know, two themes emerged. I think a lot of people are working on scaling and a lot of people are working on the, I guess I would say three themes, a lot of people working on the Oracle problem. And then the third piece is a lot of people are working on like the platform layer so that the UX as a developer of building applications is a lot easier and you're not having to roll all of your own infrastructure. Yep. So that seemed to be the general class of things that are working on various products at various, you know, stages of readiness. Yep. It's interesting too, because like that third element, which is very important at this kind of early stage of the developer ecosystem, you typically wouldn't see that kind of stuff at most like tech events. So what I mean is like, we saw a lot of teams working on developer infrastructure. Yeah. So SDKs for like iOS and Android to integrate kind of like authentication type of workflow, other teams that are building smart contract development tools, stuff like that. That was kind of interesting. You wouldn't typically see that at most kind of tech events, but they're probably worth highlighting just because the ecosystem is so early. Yeah, definitely. So we also got to meet Jeff Rosen and Doug Von Cohorn. They're both co-founders at Rhombus and Rhombus is a Oracle provider. So Oracles, I think we're going to talk about that more in this episode. They're going to be an important part of how smart contracts decide what's real and what's not. We have a recording with them at the end of this episode, but before that, we thought it'd be just uh, worth talking through Oracles, what they are and what they give us. So Faison, why don't we start off with how should we think about Oracles? Yeah. So uh, I'll quote the Wikipedia definition uh, to start with. So an Oracle is a person or agency considered to provide wise and insightful counsel or prophetic predictions or precognition of the future inspired by the gods. As such, it is a form of divination. So I guess the inspired by the gods part is what makes it different from the wizard, right? So a wizard and an oracle are different. The wizard is like a non-religious type of oracle. Is that what the difference is? I guess so. So, you know, that 
definition we can pretty much entirely discard. The interesting piece of that is an oracle is a person or agency considered to provide wise and insightful counsel. So this brings us to the oracle problem in smart contracts. So there's a large amount of smart contracts or problems that can be solved with smart contracts that require interacting with uh, data or events that are not able to be only on the blockchain. So what I mean by that is, you know, something like CryptoKitties, you can actually have the cats themselves, the game states, like the entire universe of what's important for like trading and generating CryptoKitties on the mm -hmm. blockchain. And then you can build, you know, a web UI on top of that so you can see your kitties or whatnot. But if you imagine, say, the classic case of prediction market, if we want to be able to bet on the price of Ethereum or some other sort of futures contract, you ultimately need to be able to get the price of Ethereum. Now, you know, that opens a number of questions like, where is that coming from? Is it coming from one exchange, multiple exchanges? Are you connecting to, like, is, does a smart contract connect to the API directly? If you're using an intermediary API of some sort, can you trust the intermediary API? So this Oracle problem is this broadly, when a smart contract needs to interact with data off of the blockchain to resolve like the conditions of the contract, mm -hmm. like how do you do so in a way that is A, trusted, and then B, which is a much bigger problem, decentralized, because you can imagine there being cases where you know, you're essentially relying on a single or a handful of parties to provide your smart contract data so that you lose some of the benefits of decentralization. Mm -hmm. And then the one other thing I wanted to mention was, you know, we've talked about like prediction markets, like something like prices, which is the price either was $500 or wasn't $500. That's a binary event if you're doing some sort of a, you know, prediction market. But you can also imagine for more complex smart contracts where you might need to know something that's more uh, like that isn't binary. So let's say you somehow had car insurance smart contracts. You would, you know, the currently like a insurance estimator might assess like the value of the damage. And that's a very centralized problem. And so mm -hmm. that I don't think has been solved yet, but it's just an open question on how do you deal with these central parties when interacting with smart contracts. Yep. So... I wanted to focus mainly on the binary case because I think that's where a lot of the current implementations and proposed solutions for both centralized and decentralized oracles are going. So uh, here, decentralization is what, from an oracle's perspective? Yeah. So if I write a smart contract that predicts that has some execution condition based on the price of gold hitting $1,500. And the smart contract assumes that, okay, we only care about the price from a given exchange. Then, and you know, that, that exchange is a trusted party, then that's okay. If we're predicting some other event that requires some sort of like multiple sources or some sort of consensus, you can imagine a scenario where if the external rewards of manipulating the smart contract are high enough, parties like someone could be motivated to essentially mess with the data that the smart contract interacts with. Mm -hmm. So that's more so of a problem in uh, like a voting based 
Oracle. Yep. Where let's say you have a hundred parties voting on whether the outcome was A or B, and the actual outcome was B, but there's a financial incentive for most of those parties to vote A, so they do so. Mm-hmm. I guess a corollary of that would be kind of like astroturfing on social media. Yeah, exactly. So on sites like Reddit, where you know corporate interests have found these to be pretty strong areas of opportunity to gain uh, new customers, they start astroturfing, kind of acting as if they're also part of the Reddit community and, and, and so on. Actually, one funny, just a, a tangent, like one funny theory I have, and I would love if anyone else has found any data around this, but there's a, a subreddit on Reddit called Progress Picks, and it's like, People, their before and after shots of, uh, like, say they worked out over the course of a year and ate really well and they lost a bunch of weight and got in shape. Mm-hmm. People will post their before and after. And, you know, they're pretty inspiring because you look at them and you see, like, how well people have done over a certain amount of time. And then some of them, you'll go click on them and read through them. And they'll have, like, a long list of, like, things they did. And then they'll suddenly say, like, they used MyFitnessPal. And MyFitnessPal is one of these apps where you can, like, track your calories, right? Yeah. And a few people inside will be like, oh, what's my fitness pal? Who doesn't know what my fitness pal is? Like, actually, who, like, how are there so many people who don't know what my fitness pal is? But yeah, yeah. And then there's a few, like, you see, and then if you actually go to their history, they like don't have much other stuff posted. So I always had this, like, I don't know if it's a conspiracy theory, but it's my theory that my fitness pal is astroturfing the progress pick subreddit. But huh. anyway, back to Oracle's. Yeah, 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 that's interesting. But yeah, I mean, that is a good example of, you know, if if you were somehow, like, let's say there was some sort of prediction market that was looking at my progress picks and saying, you know, the people that made the most gains, what app were they using? Were they using MyFitnessPal or Strava? And this is a scenario where MyFitnessPal is essentially gaming the result, could be gaming the results in their favor. Obviously, I'm not saying that that's what's happening. Yep. Uh, it's a made-up scenario. Yep. Faison is saying it's not what it's happening, but I'm saying maybe it is. But anyway. yeah. <laughs> okay. So there's just sticking with uh, centralized oracles, there's, you know, two scenarios to consider. One is your data is coming from a absolutely trusted source that you're directly connected to. And it's like the, it's potentially the only source of that data and they're trusted and your smart contract relies on that. Great. It's a point of failure in this, but, you know, problem solved, move on. The second scenario is you are fetching your data from a trusted source or trusted sources, but there's an intermediary that actually does the fetching of the data. Mm -hmm. So let's say I have an API that connects to a few different gold exchanges to get gold prices. Mm -hmm. And obviously we trust the prices that the gold exchanges are publishing because those are the only ones that are relevant for this example. So, but I have an API. Now, essentially with this API, I can perform a man in the middle attack and manipulate the output that the smart contracts are reading to affect the outcome of, to affect their, like the results of whatever the smart contract is built for. Yep. So there's this idea of cryptographic annotations and there's a couple of white papers and a couple of uh, projects. One is called the TLS Notary. And then the other one is called Town Crier. And essentially what they do is they are a way to implement an authenticated data feed uh, using cryptography. So the example where I am connecting to a server that does provide trustworthy results, 
and then taking those results and serving them to a smart contract. It's cryptographically provable that I have not tampered with them. So as long as you trust the ultimate source, uh, you can trust the intermediary API. Yeah. So now this you can imagine being very useful for a lot of cases where you probably don't want to write code in your smart contract that connects a third-party API that could change or has to rely on scraping or, you know, essentially third-party integrations can change. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a service that is going to provide you a consistent API for smart contracts to interact with, but then the service can be used to build a whole bunch of integrations with a whole bunch of different types of data sources, you can trust that the data that you get from the service has not been tampered with. And actually, that will tie in pretty nicely with what uh, Rhombus is doing, where they actually do build a lot of uh, custom integrations for people yep. while providing like a, a common API. So this idea of uh, you know cryptographic annotations, and we can add in the show notes both the white paper for TLS Notary and uh, Town Crier. I think these are a pretty good solution to a problem of, you know, we talked about that people working on the infrastructure level here, you can build sort of an API infrastructure that can pass through data in a trusted manner. Now, the more difficult problem becomes uh, consensus-based oracles. So this is where maybe you don't get your data from exchange, but you need some group of voters to determine what was the outcome for a given event. Mm-hmm. And in the you know in the most basic example, you say let's say you have a pool of a hundred voters uh, that just vote on the event with no economic incentive. Now that's a pretty easy scenario to imagine someone going in and manipulating if the external benefits of the, that smart contract going a certain way outweigh whatever cost there is to actually set up the manipulation. And adding a bounty to that uh, vote might shift the amount of reward that's needed from the smart contract to engage in manipulation, mm-hmm. but ultimately doesn't solve the problem of, you know, in, in the cases where manipulation is economically viable, you're still going to have uh, manipulation. Yep. And so that brings us to, you know, there's a few different implementations out there of how do you have a consensus system that bypasses or gets around both internal and external economics incentives to manipulate the market. And so there's one uh, paper that was written on, uh, it's called Astrea, that's A-S-T-R-A-E-A, a decentralized blockchain oracle. And we'll link to it in the show notes. But basically they look to solve some of the problems that exist with these, you know, just voting-based consensus. So one being uh, manipulation resistance. So the way their system works is they have uh, three groups of participants, and there, there can actually be overlap. So you have submitters, voters, and certifiers. So a submitter will be a party that essentially wants to know the answer of something. So if I create a smart contract that needs to know the you know answer to some question, I can essentially pose that question with a bounty. And then you can imagine there being a large pool of submitters that have a whole bunch of propositions. So 
let's say there's a whole number of smart contracts and there's 500 or 1,000 different propositions in aggregate across those smart contracts. So one of the interesting solutions to the manipulation problem is I can't go choose what to vote on as a voter. I'm actually randomly assigned uh, propositions in the proposition list to vote on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this limits my ability to generate a bunch of, of voters to go influence the outcome of a single proposition. And what is the incentive here of each party? Well, so the submitters uh, need a uh, trusted answer to the question because you can imagine the submitter being the author of the smart contract or the smart contract itself. Right. So it's like, I'm going to need the answer to this question on this date, for example, and I'm willing to pay some number of uh, whatever reward token uh, in exchange for an answer that can be distributed amongst the voters. And then the incentive for the voters is collecting the bounty. Yep. So I would stake myself as a voter so I can be collecting bounties by truthfully answering all of these uh, propositions. And now this somewhat gets around the the manipulation issue where because I'm being randomly assigned propositions, I can't just go create 100 voters and just go answer some proposition for a smart contract that actually has some major financial reward that I can cash in on. Mm -hmm. But it does leave an open-ended question where Essentially, as long as I'm just voting true on every proposition in the pool, Mm -hmm. I'm still going to be collecting bounties. And so we want to incentivize a correct vote. And so this is where the certifiers come in. And so unlike voters, certifiers will actually choose a proposition to vote on. And they are rewarded if they agree with the majority of the certifying stake and the voting stake. But they are rewarded only from certification pools. And so there'll be a pool for true and a pool for false. And so if everyone is just always voting true, the pool for true will run out. And uh, there's no reward collected for, you know, essentially just voting one way irrespective of the answer. So it's not an unbreakable system. But the cost of actually attacking the system, so manipulating the voters and the certifiers, can actually be measured. And so you can you know, quantify, like, under these conditions, we can trust the output of this oracle. Yep. So which is a pretty big deal. So it's not perfect, but it is at least quantifiable. So this is how their paper describes it. Say voters play a low-risk, low-reward role that is resistant to adversarial manipulation while certifiers play a high-risk, high-reward role, so they're required to play with a higher degree of accuracy. Yeah, exactly. And so I'll just read from the Medium post uh, about this, basically the five key properties that result in this approach. So one, highly parameterizable for a variety of different use cases. Uh, That makes sense because it's just broadly a binary voting system. Unlike Truthcoin-like prediction market-based oracles, it does not require a user to perform work at unexpected times. A user can keep all their stake in the system in cold storage indefinitely without losing anything. Athena, which is the name of this project, can also be used as a data availability oracle for itself, solving a huge problem facing any system that relies on external data, including all other current oracle proposals and many scaling proposals. Details for how this is done are outlined in the paper itself. And then number four, this was the one I mentioned earlier, the cost of attacking the system, 
can be measured deterministically and quantitatively. No decentralized stake-based system is impervious to attack, and being able to quantify under what conditions its output can be trusted is essential. And then finally, thanks to random assignment of propositions from a potentially large list, the system can be used in conjunction with applications whose exogenous rewards exceed the stake needed to determine the outcome of any individual proposition. So that's an interesting point. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one follow-up to this, there's a uh, project called uh, Shintaku, which is uh, apparently the Japanese word for Oracle that is uh, (laughs) basically an implementation of this uh, paper that's not 100% there, but pretty most of the way implemented, it looks like. And... You know, there's other solutions out there. There's like Augur is very big for prediction markets. They don't use a decentralized voting solution up front. They have a designated reporter, which is an address that's expected to report the outcome at a certain time window. And then if, if there's an issue, there's a dispute process. Now, the dispute process is still pretty, I'm still pretty hazy on the exact workings of that. But it's, it's worth checking out because they essentially use a, a single reporter, but there's ways to, in a more consensus-based mechanism for actually disputing that report. Mm-hmm. But it seems like it's a space that's still very early. We're just seeing white papers come out and implementations are still in the works. So we'll see where it lands up. But I think it's interesting that the two main points that I found most interesting was, you know, no consensus-based or decentralized stake-based system is an impervious attack. But if you can measure what it would cost to attack it, you know, you can still provide a lot of value with that system. And it does seem inevitable that as smart contracts do integrate with real world data, we'll need solutions like these. Yeah, absolutely. Not just like price data, but I guess other types of data as well. Yeah. And I'm interested to see where things go also in the like non-binary data front. So not like, is this true or false, but for insurance or credit or those sorts of things something that can be more open-ended. Yep. Yeah, and the Rhombus guys were talking about a insurance implementation. That one was pretty interesting. You guys, you could listen yeah. to that after this. Yeah, yeah. So theirs was in that binary realm, but it was, it was a pretty, really good real-world use case that I think is essentially ready to go because you your source of data is relatively reliable. Yep. Hey, everyone. You got Vikram here from QuantLayer. And I'm joined by Faison, also known as The Wizard, hey. um, Jeff Rosen from Rhombus, and Doug Von Cohorn from Rhombus. So we're excited to talk to them because we're super interested in oracles and what's going on on the oracle side. So we're glad to have them to be able to talk about this stuff. So why don't you tell us a little about Rhombus? Like, what is Rhombus? Where do you fit within the Ethereum ecosystem? And how do you, um, I guess, how do you, the, the other player in Oracles that you hear a lot about is uh, Chainlink, for example, and how you guys are different or similar versus them. Sure. Uh, so the one sentence summary would be that we connect your smart contract or DAP with real world data. So we bring data from the real world and put it on the blockchain. What makes us different from other Oracle providers in the Ethereum ecosystem is that we do custom end-to-end Oracle development. Uh, So we work with enterprise use cases as well as developers. Um, And rather than having a menu of options, although we do have that, we also distinguish ourselves by building custom feeds uh, based on the needs of individual customers. What are some examples of the kind of enterprise use cases that you see? Sure. I mean, there are all sorts. Uh, One that uh, just published a couple of months ago uh, was the open law use case. 
Uh, so open law is trying to bring the legal world onto the blockchain. And so they wanted to write a uh, decentralized application that allows users to purchase uh, gold call options on the blockchain uh, in a legally enforceable way. And so they wrote all the code for that. But the problem is that if you're going to enable a gold call option, then you need to know what is the price of gold. And obviously, the Ethereum blockchain has no knowledge of that. So OpenLaw uh, reached out to us and asked us to build them a custom price of gold feed that aggregated a bunch of exchanges, automatically detected and removed statistical outliers, and returned like a really stable, robust result. Uh, and in doing so, that provides them the ability to make this legally enforceable contract. And so what the mechanics there, where is that pricing data coming from on the gold side? It can come from any number of places. At Rhombus, we, like Jeff said, we're trying to build a menu of the best data suppliers in any given industry or vertical. So for that gold feed, I don't think I can remember off the top of my head all the different exchanges we went to, but it was several. And then we used a custom algorithm to discard maybe outliers and then select the median value. Got it. And I mean, that's pretty interesting as far as it sounds like a, a pretty big statistics problem in terms of figuring out what the actual number that you're going to provide is, right? And I imagine within gold, um, which is a pretty, I mean, it's a traditional market, so there's tons of gold price suppliers, right? Like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, they probably provide a lot of that data, right? When you're trying to provide data for other feeds that maybe that are more liquid, I guess crypto assets come to mind immediately with crypto asset pricing. How do you think about providing the right price or the right data around those? Great question and a very relevant question because there have been some issues that I can talk about with crypto asset feeds. One use case in particular, uh, we had a customer who requested that we build them a price of Ether feed that used 13 different exchanges. And then they also specified exactly how they wanted the algorithm to work, which outliers would remove, what exactly constitutes an outlier, and what to do with the remaining results. And the reason that's so important, you may remember back in 2017, there was the infamous Coinbase flash crash, where, and it wasn't that the API was down, the API actually operated exactly as intended. It was a liquidity issue on the market. Uh, they reported the price of Ether as 10 cents. <laughs> So actually, some very lucky people were able to purchase thousands of Ether at $0.10. Cents, right. And then a few seconds later, it was back to the market price of 300 And they were basically at retirement level from that. <laughs> something I regret every day, not having yeah. done that. <laughs> um, so anyways, it's obviously very important that you have a robust feed that can handle that kind of volatility. So that's the kind of use case that we build for our customers. And uh, on that same topic, uh, particularly with crypto asset prices, we've seen stuff gets especially, I guess, after 2017, you would see prices of assets that became completely delisted and not in any exchange. And how does that affect, like, you know, what happens to smart contracts or, or things that are interacting with data that suddenly becomes completely unavailable? Yet another reason why you need to have as many feeds as possible uh, to protect yourself against yeah. that sort of thing. It would be an interesting use case if you wrote a smart contract based on, like, some very fringe crypto asset, which, you know, got... I don't know, like unveiled as a scam or a bunch of exchanges started delisting it to the point when your feed was no longer reliable. That hasn't come up with us yet. People are mostly interested in you know, useful things like Bitcoin, Ether, Gold. Yeah, and, and there's something to be said for trying to find the best data suppliers and maybe passing down some of the profits to them as well. So some of Rhombus's mission in 2019 and further is to figure out exactly how to compensate the entire supply chain of data 
from the beginning, its inception, the ground truth, all the way to the delivery on chain. There's a lot of ways to do that. But with crypto asset data pricing, a lot of it is just finding the best suppliers. Balance is one of our providers, and they take a lot of time to make sure their feeds are robust. Yeah, we've worked with different exchanges feeds before, and all their APIs are just all over the place. Like, especially a lot of the foreign ones. I think uh, GDAX Coinbase's is fine, but they don't carry that many assets anyway. Gemini's is fine, but again, they don't carry that many assets anyway. But a lot of these kind of like exchanges abroad, their APIs go down randomly. They send like successes instead of failures. And then you, there's test all kinds of terrible production. data. Right. Like test data and production. Yeah. Delisting and relisting the same coin like 50 times in a day. It was, it's, oh, there's a lot of, yeah. we've seen some really garbage out there. So, yeah. We're, so we're, the challenge. we're trying to look into figuring out how to get data feeds insured. So if you're a customer of a feed and it's not insured, then you take on all the damages if test data gets delivered to production, right? Like that's your your problem now. So we would like to figure out a way to have the customer be risk neutral by uh, assessing what their damages might be and uh, buying an insurance package against that. So now they have data, it's risk neutral. If it gets misreported, then you report those damages and get a payout. You can imagine a case where you sign a contract with Rhombus or some other provider that says, you know, I'm going to pay more for this data feed than just the cost of processing the data and delivering the data to the blockchain. And that's going to basically be my insurance premium. And then in our contract, we'll specify you know, if data goes off correctly or it just returns wrong values, what is going to be your payout for the incorrect result of the feed. And is the intention for uh, Rhombus to be the one like underwriting these insurance policies or would you be working with like other insurance companies? Uh, We're open to both. Okay. And it's something that we don't think really exists, but should. And it's part of the way you can start incentivizing the whole ecosystem because those premiums can be shared amongst, you know, the people who are on the ground recording weather data in hurricane in um, parts of the world that have really high winds from hurricane data, uh, parts of the world where we need hurricane data. It's really hard to collect wind speeds of like 140 miles per hour. But if you're trying to automate insurance, then you're going to need some people on the ground paying for the expensive equipment and recording that data accurately. And those premiums are a way to do that. And outside of crypto, there's a lot of industries, especially in finance, that rely on like high quality data and data quality is like a big, broadly a problem. Has these like data insurance existed before or is you're bringing into crypto or is this really like a new... Great question. I don't know. I think hedge funds are highly incentivized to hide who they get their data from or maybe not publicize it or just not talk about it that much. But they do care a lot about their data quality. And I think most of the time they have teams of machine learning engineers, data pipeline people Mm -hmm. uh, doing a bunch of custom computation on top of the data they get in. So it's possible kind of like 538 gets in all the polling data and then runs their proprietary like cleaning algorithm on it. I think hedge funds might do that, but I would like to see that being available to more people, not just hedge funds with huge teams. Right. And one reason that that's so uh, exciting to be doing on chain is that you can imagine a lot of people who are very interested in offering a product on the blockchain, but the reason they don't is that they can't wrap their minds around the risk and understandably so, of, you know, if the data goes wrong, my entire business is shot. Especially if you're dealing in financial markets that are pretty regulated, 
and you're like you're using this data to provide some sort of recommendation or some sort of a brokerage service or oh, yeah. you're and carrying like some regulatory or compliance risk. And value is being kind never of, get it back. Yeah. Yep. No, that makes a lot of sense. What are some, I guess, outside of the financial arena and crypto funds, and what are some other areas that you're interested in that you think require more uh, transparency and accurate data? Sure. I mean, one great example would be decentralized insurance. So a company that wants to offer kind of like parametric, if this, then that insurance on the blockchain. An example would be flight insurance, uh, like a company that wants to set it up so that you can pay into a premium for a flight they're about to take. And then if your flight is delayed more than, say, three hours, you get a payout representing the cost of your entire flight. Of course, you can do that now without a blockchain, but the problem is you have to deal with the insurance claims process and middlemen, and they're highly incentivized to stop you. Whereas if you do it on a blockchain and a smart contract, uh, everything is publicly auditable. It's on a public ledger. Everyone can see it. There's no cheating, and you can get paid out instantly as opposed to waiting. Missed flights are a good... Because it's a relatively binary event, like you either were on the plane or not. It's not like some an adjuster has to see how much damage was done to your car. Exactly, it's a pretty binary. I'd love to see the day when you know medical insurance claims can be resolved on a blockchain, but yeah. obviously that's a lot more fuzzy and far away. Right. Something like flight insurance, uh, and there are other cases as well, are you know very obvious what happened and what didn't happen, and so you can make the payout confidently. Yeah, yeah, and this is where machine learning and AI starts to blur the boundary between human judgment and computer judgment. I think as these AI tools get better, the sphere of influence or the sphere within which AI can make judgment calls instead of humans expands. And so the type of automated judgments you can start providing, like oracles can start providing, expands. A really clear example of this is just Let's say you have a supply chain and you're sourcing bananas from somewhere and you're delivering them to a grocery store. Usually, I think maybe 10 years ago, you couldn't have a machine vision algorithm figure out whether a banana was ripe or unripe. But now you can automate that judgment. So at any point along the way, you can have something, look at a, a group of bananas and say, these are all way too ripe. Something went wrong here. And then that maybe gets delivered on chain to some automated supply chain system. But that expanding realm of computerized judgment is what we're trying to tap into. Because mm. the more that expands, the more we can provide value. Yeah. Just a random digression on that point. I once spent a summer working in a uh, French fry factory, and they had just gotten this machine that literally used cameras to detect any black spots on the chopped potatoes. And they were able to, like, they just had this essentially roller of razor blades that could go and just cut out the black spots as these potatoes came flying through and like 1.3 million pounds a day. It was, it was crazy. Yeah. Just imagine seeing the application. Yeah. Just imagine that expanding over time as these, I mean, AI is just growing so fast. Yeah. Yeah. And on that side, are you working with AI? Is that a plan for this year? Is that plan for later on? We already have very advanced machine vision and AI tools that we, we can offer as part of the computational judgment part of our Oracle. So a good example is if you wanted to start a decentralized insurance company insuring crops all around the world, well, we have the satellite data and we have that satellite imagery has infrared data. So we can run machine learning models on top of that infrared data to tell you, okay, what was the average temperature of this crop at these coordinates anywhere in the world? And then you can build insurance packages off of that. So if in the past week it was over 100 degrees all seven days, then you can get a payout. 
that sort of thing can be automated. And it just gets more complex from there. So I guess a natural play is uh, prediction markets, right? What are your thoughts around uh, working with prediction markets? There are a few that we're working with already. For us, we have a mainnet product right now. We're ready to work with them. So it's just a matter of when they're ready to get to mainnet. But you're right. That's another if this, then that case where oracles are a perfect use case. And there's you guys. There are There's Chainlink as well. Like, How are you guys different versus them and how are you similar? Sure. Uh, well, one way we're different is that we do custom end-to-end Oracle development um, based on customer use cases. Uh, in many cases, when you have these Oracle networks, you just choose from the menu of what's available. And if they have what you want, that's great. If they don't have what you want and you need something custom, you may be out of luck. Um, that's the kind of thing we specialize in. Uh, we love data. We've curated all these data feeds that we really feel confident recommending. We also are happy to work with whatever customer proprietary data they have, or if they have a specific API they want, we can always wrap it for them and put it into an Oracle. Gotcha. And how are you doing sales right now? Like, how are you getting these customers? It's a mix of inbound and outbound interest. So we talked about gold. We talked a little bit of insurance and prediction markets. What are some other data feeds that you think are interesting right now for on-chain uh, depths? Well, at this conference... And maybe Jeff can chime in with some other ones. At this conference, our favorites used all of our currency pair data. Just for this conference, a lot of people were asking about XDAI and DAI exchange rates because we had that anonymous wallet token. Yeah. So that was something we built custom just for this hackathon, and a lot of people seemed to really like it. I think random number generation is super interesting. Oh, really? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard to do that in an Oracle, but we built one just for this conference and people use that to build out a lottery system, like a totally decentralized lottery where people can pay in and get instant payouts and everything is auditable via smart contract. Mm-hmm. One interesting use case that we've been working on, uh, not for this conference, but separately involves a customer's proprietary data. So you had mentioned earlier, like with disaster insurance, say like with a traditional insurance claim, you have to show, you know, how much is my house damaged and an auditor comes in and then who knows what they're going to say if they're going to like listen to what you say. There's another way to do disaster insurance that's more parametric where you set up sensors and then the sensors detect wind speed data. And then rather than you demonstrating the damage that you've suffered, it's just a question of how high were the wind speeds in the area. And so if you can prove that a category one or two or three or whatever hurricane hit, then if you've paid a premium for that contract, you can collect the payout. Uh, So we're working with a decentralized insurance provider that's working on uh, setting that up in Puerto Rico uh, and will be the oracle for that platform. Hmm. And, uh, you know, with insurance or these financial products where you're the uh, data provider, are there any issues that you find yourselves running into in, in terms of like a regulatory or liability sense? being the data provider for some of these products? Like, how is that handled? Usually that's handled by the customer. So for the use case Jeff mentioned, uh, they're doing all the KYC and and, uh, making sure that what they're building is within legal jurisdiction. It's not about the law, but well-regulated. Got it. And then on top of that, because they're the insurer, uh, they're the ones who worry about how am I going to manage the risk? What should I charge for my premium? Can I handle it if there is a hurricane and I have to make a bunch of payouts? Complicated, and we're happy to deliver the data and the insurer can decide how they're going to do that. Got it. What is cool about that is that because they are so much more of a bare bones company than a traditional insurer, they don't have to pay this army of people to go out and settle claims. They can offer way better prices than traditional insurers. And my hope is that as that becomes more commonplace, this blockchain-based decentralized insurance will start to take over the insurance market. And what is your guys' background? How'd you get into this? 
My background is pretty much computer science going all the way back. Started coding in middle school and never really looked back. So I got a computer science degree and then moved out to San Francisco. We actually went to the same college together. We all, like four of us all moved in the same apartment in San Francisco and then just started building companies out there. So this is maybe my like sixth or seventh. And uh, about two and a half years ago, I just decided to jump into Ethereum full time. And then it ended up like this. For me, I've known Doug since high school. We're co-founders of Rhombus. We've co-founded companies together before. Uh, my background is in computer science as well. I've been programming as well since middle school. I studied math in college and before Rhombus had been working as a software engineer for several years on a bunch of different startups in San Francisco. And uh, what interested you specifically in like the Oracle space? Like you, you know, interest in Ethereum, you see the ecosystem. What brings you to this this corner? It was mostly an accident. I uh, wanted to work on Truffle, and so I was working on Truffle, and then maybe a couple months in building Truffle, I wanted to make something a little bit more advanced as a DApp, and Googled around, wrote a Stack Exchange question about how to get outside data in. And everyone responded, oh, this is the Oracle problem, you know, and it's apparently it's just been discussed since 2009 and early Bitcoin forums. So uh, once I read all this stuff, I got obsessed and started this with Jeff. And you guys didn't go through a ICO process, right? Like you, how are you funded right now? We have an investor called Consensus. They're the global uh, blockchain venture studio and they've invested in a number of blockchain startups, including us. And is how big is the team? Uh, depending on how you count, between three and eight. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> just like part-time interns, um, yeah, yeah. Contractors. contractors. Yeah, got it. So, what are you excited about for the rest of the year? So, like I said, we have this mainnet Oracle product. We are waiting for more and more projects to move to mainnet because we want to be able to serve them and enable their DApps to do all these awesome things. I'm excited that it seems like the Biddle phenomenon from 2018 has carried over into 2019. It's so exciting at ETH Denver seeing all these awesome projects being built. So the more projects that move to mainnet, the more we can do as an Oracle provider and the more value the ecosystem is going to provide. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. I've been pretty impressed just overall in terms of the number of teams here. There are a lot of developers here, right? I don't know what the, number, the total count is, but there's a lot of teams that are building here. So, I mean, oracles, right? What are some other uh, kind of niche areas within, and I don't mean niche in a negative way, it's just niche as in like it's part of the ecosystem. What are some other areas you think that are really interesting that if you weren't working on oracles, what might you be looking at? Pretty exciting. I mean, obviously we all know blockchains have to be more scalable. They have to be able to handle more throughput. Um, There are several different companies attacking that problem from different Mm -hmm. angles. I'm really interested to see how that shakes out. Yeah, there's been a lot of talks on scalability related solutions. Yeah. And sidechains are part of that. So any sort of sidechain tech. I, I really loved the XDAI that was introduced at this conference where you have a proof of a authority or autonomy sidechain that has a, its own token, XDAI, and it's tied to DAI on-chain. And it's totally anonymous. You can use it anywhere. And uh, it validates transactions super fast. I thought that was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, we also saw the Plasma Cash presentation with the Georgios. I don't know. Are you, are you guys familiar with that um, implementation? Okay. Mm-hmm. So I guess uh, scalability, anything else that you think is pretty, pretty interesting to pay attention to? Oh, I mean, I can just mention one project that I really am into. I really like Gitcoin. 
like I've contributed to open source before. Blockchains are a perfect use case for incentivizing open source development and keeping track of who's contributed what. It's really exciting seeing that project grow. Faison, do you have any other questions? Yeah, uh, I was just like, I was going through your site and documentation and whatnot today, just learning more about oracles. And, you know, I looked, there's like the periodic and asynchronous oracles, pretty straightforward. And then there's uh, this section on lighthouse oracles. Can you talk a little bit more about what those are and how those are used? Sure, yeah. The lighthouse oracles are the periodic oracles. So the two types of delivery mechanisms are by request, so pull-based or push-based. And uh, the lighthouse is push. And you tell us how often you need the data or at what specificity. And uh, we just push the data to a contract that we call a lighthouse because it sends out a beacon. Mm-hmm. We tell you the address ahead of time, and then we start delivering your data. So those are the oracles we actually deployed for the hackathon. We defined 30 periodic oracles, currency pairs, weather data, transaction volume data, which we partnered with Alethio to get, and a bunch of other things. They were all lighthouse oracles, and uh, the developers were able to build some cool stuff. Yes. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks a bunch for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yes. Thanks. Hey, everyone. This is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you are an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at Quantlayer. That's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R. Or email me at Vikram at Quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M like Monero at Quantlayer.com. I will write back. And if you like our podcast so far, please hit subscribe and rate and review us because that would help us a lot. Thanks. Thanks.